0: You to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 and we'll be looking at specifically verses 13 through 21. Now we've been talking about the renewed mind and the renewed mind, the renewed mind is one of a living sacrifice. That means when somebody has a renewed mind, and as they are renewing their mind, as a Christian, the first and most important thing that comes into clearer focus as they get older and mature in the faith is being a sacrifice for God, being useful for the Lord. That's front and center being useful for the Lord, being an agent of the kingdom. It's to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else, that'll be added. Now, we're talking about, in the past few weeks, marks of a kingdom person. We're talking about the kind of life that We are invited and commanded to live as agents of the kingdom so that we can be useful for the Lord. So read with me Romans 12, verses 13 through 21. The Apostle Paul says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, I've said from this pulpit many times that Christianity, using that little essay by a Puritan, is nothing less than the life of God in the soul of man. It's the life of God in the soul of man. That's what Christianity is about. The Christian life is about. He has given us the Holy Spirit, So that the church can live as an extension of Jesus Christ. That's why we're called his body. So that we can be an extension of his work in the world. That's what we're called to be. All authority is given to me. Therefore, go. Create other people who come under my authority. And who are students of my way of life and belief and who worship me and teach them to observe everything I have commanded with you and know that I am with you always. And the way he is with us is through the Holy Spirit who mediates Christ's presence to us and who himself is the power of God in us. So Christians have an abiding power that is alien to the world in us. And the it's not only an alien power. It's a power strong enough to overcome the world. It's alien and powerful enough to destroy secular society. So... I want to encourage you today to take dominion of the earth through the life of God within you. And I want to encourage you to slaughter your enemies through the life of God and the soul of man and bring down every lofty opinion that raises itself against the knowledge of God. Take dominion. And too many I have seen We, we, as, we as a Christian people know this. We'll never, ever bring the kingdom in by desperately or anxiously aligning ourselves with a political party or tr- and trying to get a pagan voted into office. Know for sure that is not the way to see the kingdom come. Know for certain that that is not the way. There is no power there. There's no power in that. That's the world's way of doing power. In his book, Spirit of the Disciplines, Dallas Willard characterizes the, how, how America specifically has grown into a polarized society with two parties and Christians usually latch onto one or the other depending on how liberal-minded or conservative-minded they are. And he comments and says, each of the two parties, he's writing in the early, late 80s. Imagine how strong, imagine how poignant this is today. He says, each of the two parties now mainly defined themselves and prided themselves in not being the other. And neither exhibited an inherent richness or strength to mark themselves out as transcendent life forces Powerful enough to threaten the structures of secular existence. Neither of the parties mark themselves out as transcendent life forces. Powerful enough to challenge the structures of secular existence. I think that's so true. No politician has challenged secular society. Now, in this passage we have today, but Christians can, and we can, but it's not that way. And I'm not not talking about not voting. I'm talking about not anxiously latching on to worldly realms and pagans to save Christianity. Now, in this passage, we're given a snapshot of that life, power, and force that's operative within us that can destroy secular society. It is a counterintuitive way of being, but it is a powerful way of being. I told you about a little book, I think I mentioned this before, it's about a year old now, written by an atheist, or an agnostic, and it's called Dominion. And he chronicles the way that Christianity took over the known world within 300 years of its beginning. And his thesis is that Christianity took dominion of the earth, the known world through counterintuitive self denying ethics. It began with one man who, in, in the most unprecedented statement in both Jewish and Greek literature, you cannot find this kind of thing during that time, said love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. Then he died a death for his enemies. And then during that death, he prayed that the Father would forgive them. And that event, followed by his subsequent resurrection, marked the beginning of a movement that within 300 years would take over the world. And have dominion. Now there have certainly been ebbs and flows in history since then. But I think those three, first three, four hundred years of Christianity shows you the power, that transcendent life force that resides within Christians, if they deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. This passage is not about being nice. This passage is about being powerful. And verse 21 is the key to this passage. And it's the key to the Christian life. Do not be overcome by evil, but overpower evil with good. The good is the power within you, i.e. the Holy Spirit, The good is also that which is according to God's will. It's the power and the way of the divine order. And it involves self-denying, cross-bearing, downward mobility. So, I I think four points. First... Overcoming evil within our own ranks means pursuing to live in harmony with the brethren. Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In verse 15 he says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. What this challenge is is other communities secular communities who are marked by nothing but competition and survival of the fittest. Jesus does not teach survival of the fittest. He says the greatest among you will be your servant. And he talks about lifting up the lowly brother. I read it, I listened to an Audible book. I, I love Audible. Audible is a little app on your phone, and you could download books, the monthly purchase, but you can download books and listen to them. And it's, it's really great. So when you're driving in the car, you're listening to these books. It's, it's, it's a great way um, to study. And I, I learn by, by listening a lot, even more so than reading. I think I take it in better. But um, one of the books I, I listened to recently was called Lost in Thought, by Zena Hitz, who is a professor at St. John's College in Maryland. And she talked about how she had advanced in academia. And she had advanced as a professor. And in the academic realm, they worship one another, almost. And the most important thing is being not just the most intelligent, but the person that, that can st- destroy your argument or find a hole in, in your thought. And they have seminars where they all sit there and they, and they pick apart one another's arguments. And here's, here's what Zina had said about that kind of atmosphere and community. She says in her book, to say that we sought status and approval sounds more bloodless than it actually was. We wanted it at the expense of others. We observed and cultivated, for instance, the thrill of the critical academic takedown. A ritual act of humiliation that usually took place in public. A cutting book review a devastating objection from the back of the lecture hall. These were a currency of success, not despite, but because of their cruelty. We viewed such events with awe, as if to tacitly recognize their inhuman character. Our embrace of public acts of competition, humiliation, <laughs> Mixed in a sickly way with our perception of the real loftiness of learning. The victors in these gladiatorial contests thus took on a certain grandeur that inspired the fascination and idolatry of many. And this idolatry, elsewhere recognized as celebrity, was what we wanted for ourselves. That was simply what mattered to us, by taking down the other person. Well, in scripture we have a quite different ethic, a quite different way. James tells us, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. It is a way, an invitation, For evil to come in, so that people bite and devour one another. So Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Harmony means being be of the same mind. Live a life that is in thorough agreement with one another. Paul in verse 13 he says. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Literally, the word there is share in the needs of the saints. It's interesting, we talk about sharing the wealth today a lot. Paul says, share in the needs of the saints. Share in the poverty of the saints. And this was done entirely for widows in the first century. Who, if they were widowed, and when they were widowed, if they were a God-fearing woman, who supported the church, would be entirely supported financially and materially by the brethren. Harmony, so harmony means sharing in the poverty, in the needs of the saints. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. It means participating in joys and sorrows. Because usually in a spirit of competition, in a realm of competition, someone rejoices when they've gained some kind of success and that leads others with the competitive spirit to respond to that success with jealousy and envy rather than rejoicing with those who rejoice. Weeping with those who weep means not turning a blind eye to one another, but actually participating in sorrows and successes In the community I love this one This is very important Verse 16 Do not be haughty Do not think too highly of yourself Or your gifts I'm reminded of Charles Spurgeon Remember we talked about Not thinking too highly of your gifts Or, your, or the, what God has given you In the Christian life because he's also given other people things too that are very integral and important to the Christian community and realm. I remember Charles Spurgeon said, it's a mystery to me why people who think so much about what the Holy Spirit has said to them think so little about what the Holy Spirit has said to other people. That's what Paul's getting at. So do not be haughty Associate with the lowly. It could mean lowly things or lowly people. Either one works. The the lowly brother is a brother who's, who's not the one that you would gain social capital with for helping. The lowly brother, and some of you have done that. Some of you have done that, and I've seen that. You've helped people, not because you're gaining something, but because the Holy Spirit's testifying to you that this is a good and right and true and faithful thing to do. To associate with the lowly is the person who's, you're not going to gain anything from helping. He's not thought of much in the community a few people are just going through my mind. But those are the ones to, to help, uh, to stay in contact with, to, to answer their phone calls, to, um, uh, to help. Because Jesus said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me, right? So, to live in harmony is to live as a collective unit. To live as a collective unit. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that's the lowly brother, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That is... A powerful community. So two things about this I want to point out. Number one, this is what Jesus commanded us to be like. He said, The greatest among you shall be your slave. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So the spirit of competition shall never and should never Exist comfortably in the Christian community whether local church or academic level Number two is this not a vision for a compelling community that we've been given by the Apostle Paul this chapter This is a community that can disrupt the spirit of jealousy competition and envy And that would make other communities wonder what it is about us that we are so strong and powerful and different. So the way to threaten pride and selfish ambition in a community is to pursue humility with one another and service of the most lowly. Downward mobility. The way you move up. Is down The way you live is by bearing your cross The way you have life in yourself is by denying <coughs> yourself Not follow your own, following your own heart, but following him Why would you want to be who you are? As it's constantly been said be yourself. Why would I want to be myself? I want to be who Christ is I don't want to be the pathetic person that I would be without Christ (coughs) that is one way to overcome evil with good within our own ranks by humility and self-serving number two overcoming evil with good means that you do not become overpowered by evil yourself So the here the The question I want to put forward here is what do you bring? Forth when evil is brought to you What do you bring forth when evil is brought to you? Because evil is a is like a virus we've talked about this before it it uses a host organism to incarnate itself And then attaches itself to, in his past, from that host organism to other host organisms to continue thriving. That is sin and that is evil. That's how it works. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. To bless somebody means that you are asking God's favor on them and praying for them. And Jesus said, you want to be sons of your father? Then, do, then pray for your enemies because he makes rain to fall on their crops. And he sends them good. So you want to be like your father, sons of your father? Pray for those who persecute you and do good to your enemies. Do not repay, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. This is so important, to give thought to what is honorable. So this means rising above the instincts. Rising above the instincts. It's it's for some reason, because we lived in a, A society which thinks that self-expression is the key to authenticity we've fallen into the trap that thinking our first impulse is the right one and we think that if we're not operating on the basis of that first impulse that we've been authentic inauthentic somehow but authenticity is not living in conformity with how I feel It's living in conformity with what I believe in spite of how I feel at the moment. You follow that? It's not about living in conformity with my momentary fluctuations. It's by living in conformity with what I know and what I believe and who I'm following. So give thought, Paul says, to what is honorable. Don't operate first off your first instinct when the angry lesbian persecutes you. Give thought to what is honorable. Give thought. Rise above your instincts. When someone online... This, I mean, because 90% of our conversation now takes place over the Internet. So when someone online... Gives you a, a liberal zinger. How, I, think, I think this is per, online, fine. It's a good place to demonstrate your Christian convictions. But if you come back with just vitriol and, and, um, and a sharp, biting word, you're just participating in the same kind of battle and with the same kind of weaponry that they are. It's the same kind of weaponry. Rise above, give thought to what is honorable. And to what is honorable is not just being correct. What is honorable means being winsome. Being honorable means being dignified. And it means being respectable and persuasive at the same time. So being correct, this is, this is what I aim for in my ministry. It's being Right but being right in such a way that I'm at the same time dignified and I'm giving a good name for Christ in the way I'm correct. And that's persuasive. Now, when someone's met with injustice, Paul's saying, when you're wrong, when you are wronged, what do you come at them with? What do you come back at them with when you, when evil is given to you? And Paul's saying, come back with them with thinking about what is honorable and then being dignified, measured, self-controlled, winsome in the eyes of the world, being salt and light because we bear the name of Christ. This, by the way, is very similar To the qualifications of an elder that Paul gives. Paul says, therefore an overseer. Must be above reproach. The husband of one wife. Sober minded. Sober minded. Sober minded means that. He's not fluttering around. Nervous, anxious, angry. About everything that comes at him. He is sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. And he must be well thought of by outsiders. So somebody who conducts himself in such a way that is dignified and respectable in the Christian community... And because he carries himself in this way, even though outsiders may think he's a bigot, they cannot attack his character. I I tell you, one of the models for this for me is not, although there have been pastors that have been models like this for me, um, but one of the models has been Dr. William Lane Craig, who's actually not a pastor himself, but a philosopher. And he... Debates he goes on these debate circuits with with the most violent Atheists and people and intellects too and I, I was so built up in my faith in my early 20s by listening to William Lane Craig debates because he tears them to shreds He just tears them to pieces in these debates, but he does it with such a dignified gentle and respectful way and, and Richard Dawkins refuses to debate him, by the way. Refuses to debate him. He tears him to pieces. I love this guy. But at the same time, no name-calling, no disrespect, dignified, learned, respectable. And it gives a good name for Christ, and I've learned a lot from him. If you want to look up his ministry, it's called Reasonable Faith. ReasonableFaith.org. Verse 18. Overcoming evil means sowing peace. Planting peace in the ground. He says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now Jesus taught us to be peacemakers, right? And there's one thing to want peace And create chaos, and it's another thing to want peace and then to make it. Be a peacemaker, not just a peace-wanter, right? If possible, so far it depends on you, live in peace with all people. So the main point here, the main point is to promote peace, amen? The qualification is if possible, if possible, insofar as it depends on you, because there are going to be some times where peace is wrong to keep. Sometimes you need to defend truth, and sometimes we will need to stand up for righteousness and against corruption and debauchery. And God is not, please understand, Telling you to make peace with evil. Lydia told me about a horrible thing, where uh, a couple got divorced, and father's a husband, but the the little boy decided he's transgender now, and it's against the father's will. Um, but through the courts, they decided no, and the mother's good with it. He's transgender, and the father. Is against this and he's fighting against this, but there's nothing he can do. That I don't even know why I'm bringing that up, but that's something I don't want to have peace with. I'm not peaceful about that. You are just, you, you are inevitably destroying the child. Inevitably destroying the child. The suicide rate for children. Are, who turn transgender is like 50 times more than the average and then obviously parent people are gonna say oh yeah because they're persecuted no they're not They are not persecuted The LGBTQ community is the strongest most powerful movement in the world. They're not persecuted give me a Insanity So, we strive for peace, but not at the expense of what is good, right? Now, verse 19. Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To avenge yourselves is to inflict harm on somebody in return for harm that they've inflicted on you. That means that's when you're avenging yourselves. And Paul says, do never do that, he says. Never do that. You heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Jesus said it. Pray for you, those who persecute you. Now, the literal translation here, and the more and more I preach, the more and more I get frustrated with the ESV. Because I wish it would just give me the straight thing. Tell me what it said. But the, the literal translation here is um, not leave it to the wrath of God. Um, never avenge It says, leave it to the wrath of God. Literally, it translates, but give place for wrath. That's very, that puts a different complexion on it because what Paul seems to be saying here is if you take matters into your own hands, you are taking it out of God's hands. Right? That's your choice. You want to take matters into your own hands? Fine. Then God will not be your defender. But if you call on the name of the Lord, to repay someone for wrong that they've done and to stand by you and to be your defender and to be your arbiter of peace and justice. If you call on the name of the Lord, he will stand by you and he will avenge you. Nevertheless, the main point here The main point here is that Christians should be non-vengeful and non-violent, right? That's the main point. And the reason we should be non-vengeful and non-violent is because God is vengeful. And God is violent. And that belongs to him. Please understand, this is what scripture is teaching us. Okay, so you're not called... To be the arbiter of justice—that belongs to the Lord, and that's a good thing. Because every tear cannot be wiped away with all the corruption there is in the world today. So you are to be Christian, non-vengeful and non-violent, because God is vengeful, and He is violent, and He will take vengeance out of His en- on His enemies. Now, some of you are saying, should we really want that? Should we really give pla- want to give place to wrath? I mean, should we really want this? I, I, I suggest to you, as somebody who grew up in a nice, peaceful log cabin in the woods, was homeschooled, my mom always fed me, my dad was good, grew up fishing, playing baseball, Went to a Christian school and then a Christian college. It seems to me that our uncomfortableness with this kind of thing, giving place for wrath and calling on the Lord for wrath, is, um, is because we don't experience the true ruthlessness of the world. At least I haven't. But there are people who are ruthless. And there is a world that is dark and evil beyond all telling That we are not, I am not familiar with The realm of child sex trafficking and execution in the Middle East Only a culture that's completely detached from that kind of evil would its people feel uncomfortable with the wrath of God. In his book, Exclusion and Embrace, uh, there's a Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volf. I do not suggest you read him, but he does make a good point in his book. His point is that Christians should be nonviolent and passive, But here's how he explains it. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. And this will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss this, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where... Um, uh, in a war zone, and among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of your lecture is a Christian attitude towards towards violence, and the, the-, the-, the thesis. We should not retaliate since God is perfect, nonviolent love? Soon, you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of that kind of thesis, that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. What he's saying is that the reason you should be gentle and nonviolent is because you have a defender who is much stronger than you. And you need to give place for wrath. Give place. Don't take it out of God's hands. Put it in the Lord's hands. Never avenge yourself, but be a light on a hill. And as we get more secular and secular in our society, maybe we'll have a chance to do this. A few years ago, a man walked into a small Amish town, a small Amish school. He took out a gun and he shot 10 little Amish girls, killing many of them. Devastated. Then he killed himself. That night, that very night, the Amish people went to the mother of the person's house who shot up their children to comfort her. And the Amish came to her house and told her we are praying for you we are here for you and these were the victims of the families and they were there at that man's funeral that brothers and sisters is power that's power Therein lies a life force powerful enough to threaten secular society. Therein lies a life force strong enough to bring an evil man to his knees under obedience to Christ. Therein lies power. That's being a city on a hill. So we should never avenge ourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, and not in an attitude of wanting that person to utterly be destroyed, but in an attitude of self-denying Christ-like love, the kind of love that was exhibited and Came forth from christ when he said father forgive them for they know not what they do as they spat mocked and crucified him The way of the cross is the way of power So If your enemy is hungry feed him if he is thirsty give him something to drink For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. To heap burning coals on somebody's head is probably shame because you've acted in a dignified, upright, honorable, self-denying, humble way. You've heaped fires of coals of fire on that person's head, strong enough and hot enough, to make that person reconsider and bow the knee to Christ. Everyone everyone ever, ever, anyone watched that movie Cross in the Switchblade with Nikki Cruz and David Wilkerson? David Wilkerson is a, a um, preacher who, before he became a preacher in New York City, would go to gangs in New York City in the 70s, I believe. 70s, 60s or 70s, and he would go to violent gangs in the cities, and they were very violent gangs in the cities, and still are, I understand. But even then, when when the police weren't as the police force weren't as strong, they kind of ruled towns. And there was one gang leader named Nicky Cruz, who was feared. Feared among, apparently, the gangs, and they would have. At night, when night set, they would go out into the yard and and there would be gang fights and shots and and gangs would be beating each other with clubs and chains and guns and leaving people dead on the streets. They were violent. And David Wilkerson, small, unimposing, soft-spoken white man, went into the dark alleys. And preach the gospel to Nicky Cruz's gang. And he kept doing this. Until one day, Nicky Cruz says, You come near me again and I'll kill you. I'll cut you into pieces. And it's reported that Wilkerson said, Yeah, you can do that. You could cut me up into a thousand pieces and lay them in the street and every piece will still love you. Nikki Cruz became a Christian and he quit that life and became a minister himself and actually began the ministry called Teen Challenge. That is power. So you come near me, I'll kill you. Non power. Is to put your hands up and say, all right, let's do this then. That's not power. Power is to say, yes, you could do that. You could cut me into a thousand pieces. And every one of them will still love you. That was powerful enough to bring Nikki Cruz to his knees. And bring him under authority of Christ. That is power, self-denying, that challenges secular society, does it not? So, you want to exhibit strength and power? I want to. We want to exhibit strength and power as a church, as a Christian society. Let us not run to pagans and people who walk as enemies of God first let us run to to true strength and power, the kind of power that is muscular enough and strong enough to bring a person out of the realm of Satan and to make him bow the knee to Christ. And then, when the church learns to do this consistently and obediently, then maybe we will see Romans 16, verse 20, Come to fruition when Paul says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Let's close in a word of prayer. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only wise God be glory and power and majesty and dominion now and before all time and forevermore. Amen. Amen. If anyone would like special prayer, uh, come up. I would love to pray with you. But don't forget, we have a meeting in about 10, 15 minutes once we shut down. God bless you.